Hello and welcome to the Pinnacle Podcast, brought to you by Pinnacle.com, the online bookmaker that offers you the best odds, highest limits and a unique winner's welcome policy. I'm your host Ben Cronin and joining me today is one half of one of the biggest names in golf data analytics. It's Matt Corshane from Data Golf. Hey, thanks for having me on. No, thank you for coming on. Really looking forward to today's uh, today's episode. So if, as I mentioned there, you're kind of, data golf is quickly becoming a, a big name in the, in the world of golf data analytics and for anyone really interested in, in betting on golf. But before we, before we get into that, I'd like to just kind of talk a little bit about you and kind of where you've progressed from to get to where you are now. So could you just tell us a little bit about your life before data golf? Yeah, sure. Um, so I grew up and still currently live in Canada. Um, growing up, I had two brothers, and we lived in a rural part of Canada, so we were constantly outside competing with each other and other kids around the neighborhood. And so growing up, sports were kind of what occupied my mind uh, into, into and through most of my teenage years. Um, and then I went off to university, did an undergraduate degree. Uh, probably even at that point, still wasn't, I guess, engaging intellectually as much as I could have, sort of just checking all the boxes to get, to get that degree. Um, and then after that, I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, so I decided to do a master's in economics. And that's probably where I really became uh, interested in using statistics and data to, to answer questions about the world. And then from there, that was just a one-year program. Um, I enrolled in a PhD economics program, which is where, where I really um, think I started to like, challenge myself and grew a lot um, intellectually. Um, and then during my second year of that program is when uh, my younger brother, Will, and I started to work on data golf. And it started out as just a blog where we would analyze some golf data or write about uh, some statistical concept. And then since then, data golf started occupying more and more of my time. And now, currently, I'm four years into that PhD, but I'm currently on a <clears throat> leave of absence for one year, um, in large part just to work on data golf. So I do plan to go back and finish that degree because... Um, economics and statistics more generally is still a big passion of mine. I do want to finish that, but right now it seemed like a good, uh, a really good opportunity to, to focus on the, the data golf website for a while. And you mentioned there that the website's kind of taken up more and more time. You've actually taken a leave of absence. I'd be interested to know that where did you see or what career path did you see yourself taking if data golf wasn't part of the equation? Yeah. So the, the natural path from an economics PhD is to, to go into academia and uh, uh, just work on research, work on your own research at a university. Um, I think definitely for me that's become, so I guess starting the PhD, I guess that's probably what my goal was. But uh, now that's that's definitely off the radar, I think, um, for a lot of reasons. I think academia is mostly just not, uh, not for me. But uh, still with an economics PhD, a lot of people go into a data science career. You sort of have to retool a bit, but I think that's where I... Uh, see myself ultimately going. Um, I think data golf will be something that I work on at least part-time. Right now it's pretty much full-time, but at least part-time for a long time. But uh, I think a data science career is where I ultimately see myself. And there's a, there's there's kind of two worlds colliding here with your, your studies and obviously sports. So I assume there was a, a, a high interest in, in golf sort of in the early part of your life as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think... I guess probably hockey and golf. Hockey in Canada obviously is very big, so hockey and golf were probably the two main sports that 
uh, both myself and my two my two brothers played growing up. Um, but yeah, we all took up the we all took up golf probably when we were six or seven, and uh, we had a really great golf course. It was very cheap. We all had uh, memberships, and then during the summers we would pretty much spend when we were little we would spend pretty much every day there. So golf, yeah, golf was a big part of my life growing up and then even at university during my my undergraduate it's a short season in Canada but um, I played on the university team for four years which uh, was also a really good experience and was this how kind of competitive are we talking are you a scratch player yeah from not anymore I'm not but uh, yeah I'd say from age 15 to to 22 probably I um, I'd say I was right around scratch yeah playing a lot of competitive golf and and taking it very seriously and you mentioned there obviously growing up with your your brothers and playing playing golf with your brothers and will specifically you said is a big part of the the data golf project i'm interested to know like where exactly does he come into it is it a case of you share the workloads you have kind of different skill sets that complement each other or is there a lot of similarities there yeah we share a lot of the same skill sets will will also has a degree in uh, an undergraduate degree and a master's degree in economics um so he as far as data golf goes, I'd say we all we both we both work on uh, all of the content that goes into the site. Will is a better a, a better programmer. He's better at um, the web development stuff and a bit of the back end stuff. So he would uh, his work would skew a bit towards that, and then mine would skew a bit towards um, doing this the actual modeling, um, maybe a bit more of the writing. Um, but we we both we both work on everything that goes into data golf, which. I think is well we both I think we both like it that way it's good to have like variety in what we do but then it's also good I do I think our skill sets do complement each other a fair bit so that's that's been good and obviously looking at the looking at the final product I'm assuming there's a there's a hell of a lot of work that does go into it and I mean we're I guess we're kind of making a bit of an assumption here with a lot of people knowing what it's about but for anyone that that doesn't know about data golf hasn't seen the website how would you kind of summarize what it is and kind of what it offers yeah um, I would I would sort of divide the site into three parts. Um, overall, the site, the theme of the site, obviously, as the our our not very creative name suggests, is that uh, it's the intersection of data analytics and golf. Um, and then the site is is basically, like I said, three different things. I'd say there's there's a lot of interactive pages where you go to a web page and you can interact with uh, raw data or maybe data that's been analyzed a bit. And we've tried to display it in a way that the end user can um, can find insight from it. So one example of that is we've we've basically visualized the last uh, well since 2004 all of the strokes gain data on the PGA Tour, and you can click on any player and it'll populate a graph and you can sort of hover over any data point and you can see what each player's strokes gained was at uh, on each in each round of their career, and it's a cool graph because it's uh, yeah it's across all tours and it's but that's just one example. Um, so we have many pages like that. And then the second part of the site, I guess, is uh, a lot of stuff to do with our predictive model. So again, we we do pre-tournament predictions with our model. And then we also do uh, a live predictive model, which is uh, an interactive page where you can go during any PJ Tour event or any. We also do it for the European Tour. Um, and the model is updating every five minutes with win probabilities, cut probabilities. Um, so that's kind of a cool thing to follow. Uh, and then the third part of the site is our blog post where we we try and take deep dives into golf questions and we answer them with statistics 
Um, and then some, some of the posts, I guess, are almost pure statistical posts, just trying to really dig into some concept. Um, and yeah, that's, that's basically the site. Uh, and then recently we've launched a subscription product where you can, uh, this is more geared towards sports betters, where we have uh, our predictive model stuff displayed in useful ways alongside of odds aggregated from a bunch of different bookmakers. And there's some obviously quite distinctive categories there in terms of the the raw performance data, the, the visualization, there's some tools on there and the blogs. When it comes to your audience, is there kind of um, people are more drawn towards certain sections or is there a balance across your audience in terms of what they're interested in? Yeah, I think our audience, initially the goal was for the site to be for just general golf fans. We actually didn't have um, people who play fantasy golf or sports betters in mind. Now our audience has definitely become, I think our most engaged users are people who gamble or people who play fantasy. And they, I think they interact with uh, most of the site, uh, probably less maybe the blog posts, but I'm not sure. Actually, I'm not sure that they probably, a lot of them probably read the blog posts. Um, but yeah, those, they would be, I guess, more, they would care more about the predictive model content, I guess. And then the general golf fans would engage more with the, uh, the interactive things. Uh, people in the media, I guess, have started to, hopefully it continues, but I've started to use their stuff a bit, and they like they like to use um, a lot of our historical data on specific events to talk about course history or course fit, um, and also that that strokes gain visualization I was talking about. Um, I think that's useful for just people generally. Um, that's also useful for gamblers too. So I think we have a a good mix, and I don't think our audience is too segmented on on which parts of the site they use. I mean, it's interesting to note there that you're saying kind of media is picking up on it and things like that. Do you think more generally speaking, sort of the wider golf audience is becoming more data aware and it's becoming more useful? Yeah, I think so. Uh, so definitely like the revolution in golf, uh, uh, in golf data analytics was was started with Mark Brody, who he created the strokes gain concept in golf, which is is roughly, it's, it's it allows you for every single shot that's hit on the PGA Tour, you can you can say how how many strokes better that shot was than what would you what you would expect from a PGA Tour player. So he he uh, he he came up with that I think in 2008 or 2009, and uh, and that's really revolutionized I think the way people, including the media, think about golf. So now strokes gained that concept is very mainstream. It's on the PGA Tour's website. Um, the announcer <laughs> the announcers on TV uh, will reference it all the time, but. I do think golf still has a long way to go because, uh, or maybe this is true of all sports, but it's still, I don't think anyone really, and I guess it's fair enough. I don't, I don't like reading articles that take a lot of thought either, but I think the media still are just in favor of sort of presenting these catchy statistics that don't really have any meaning. Um, I think in golf, especially it's very popular to just sift through your, some old data set and find interesting patterns about, who's played well at which courses or, or how many wins so-and-so has in some time span. But uh, I, I think these things are interesting maybe, but they're in general, they're very, uh, they're, they're useless in the sense that they don't, they're not predictive of anything. And uh, uh, so, yeah, to answer, I do think golf has a long way to go, but it, it's, it's getting there, I think. And is that kind of that potential growth? Is that something along with your, you kind of being a fan of the sport, is that what drew you towards golf? Because I know you said about like hockey and things like that. Was there ever, was that something you pursued in terms of data analytics as well? Uh, no, no, it wasn't. Um, I guess golf did. So golf, hockey was, 
uh, reasonably, I mean, golf was probably always number one for us growing up. So that was part of it. And then also we had a, uh, we had a really good data set for golf. The PGA Tour used to have a program where they, they lent out, not lent out, they gave um, this really clean data set with, with shot level data. So data on GPS data on every shot hit on the PGA Tour since, since 2004. And, we, uh, my brother and I got that data set um, right before, kind of right around when we started the data golf project. So that was, I think that was a big driver, I guess, just that we had this clean data, whereas hockey um, or any other sport we didn't. Um, but then also golf was just always uh, definitely a big passion. And, and also golf, yeah, I think golf is underdeveloped in terms of how much data is used. So we, we definitely thought there was a void that we could fill. So kind of those three things definitely all contributed so you you touched upon kind of one of the very popular elements of your website is the predictive modeling aspect of things and i'm sure a lot of people listening to this is certainly from a from a betting angle that's something that they're very interested in i'd like to kind of just dive into that a little bit more and perhaps we can first talk about modeling in general and then we can look into more detail kind of at golf specifically so from your perspective and from your experience, what skills do you think people need to be able to to build a predictive model or get involved in modeling? So I think uh, there's a few basic, not basic, there's a few skills you definitely need, which are uh, you need to have a good understanding of statistics. Um, you probably need to be a pretty good programmer, depending on um, what the problem is like. Um, and then more generally, I think it helps to be a very skeptical person um someone who's willing to change their opinion willing to continually revise um revise that opinion um i do think i think in general like as far as the statistical knowledge goes i think you can get really far with in modeling with just a really good understanding of basic statistics even just uh linear regression which is usually the first thing you learn in um some introductory statistics courses I think can get you very far um but yeah those uh those basic those two basic skills statistics programming that's sort of the the building blocks I think to really get involved with uh, modeling and a lot of the time when you kind of people begin to to get interested or follow a path in in modeling and quite often uh, programming languages, things like R and Python, they can seem quite daunting to a to a beginner. So, what would you, if there's someone listening to this that are really they're a bit put off because of that, is there something or anything that you think could maybe give them the the motivation to push through it and actually give it a try? Um, I definitely agree. It is daunting to to start a new programming language, especially if you don't have uh, programming experience, but uh, I definitely think it's doable. I, I know myself, I didn't have all of our model, all of our modeling is done in either R or Python, and I didn't have experience in either when we started this out, started out on this project. So I think, I think, yeah, if, you, if you're just, if you're looking to get into it and you don't have any experience, it is going to be a steep learning curve, but I think it's really rewarding once you, once you sort of get over the hump and you've sort of you've sort of gotten over the the programming hurdle, which can sort of limit what you can do, um, then you can really start digging into a statistical problem, and then through that you're going to find that's going to push you in different directions. That's going to force you to learn different things about the language, and that to me is the best way of of learning the language when you're trying to specifically answer uh, questions about your model or or whatever whatever your question is. 
Um, so I, I do think it's hard, but especially with R and Python, once you once you get over that initial hurdle, the, the flexibility it gives you is um, is really great because there are there definitely are other programming languages out there that are more high level than um, so by high level I mean the commands you use. There's a lot that the the language is just doing for you behind the scenes. So those those higher level languages would in theory allow you to build models, but they don't allow you the the flexibility and customizability of of an R or a Python, and they also limit your understanding of of what you're doing. So I w it is hard for sure uh, starting out, but I think it's worth it to go the route of of an R or a Python. And you often see in, in that kind of field and people that are involved in, in modeling and stuff like that, there's a, as you kind of said as well, there's a there's an element of being self-taught or developing yourself and kind of continuing to learn. So if there's, do you have any kind of resources or suggestions to people out there to for them to read or to get involved with to help them out? Uh, I have a few blogs that I always read. Um, I was, just because I was brought up in the, uh, through economics, that's how I came into statistical modeling. I probably have different resources that, that I use than most people, than most people would. Uh, a good, a really good general blog for people who are more into, or maybe who aren't just starting out maybe, but they have a little bit of experience, uh, is a website called andrewgelman.com. It's the, it's the guy's name. He's a professor at Columbia and he says a daily blog and it's always, it's touching on different statistical concepts every single day. And it just. It just gets you thinking when you when you read that blog, and it, it can lead you to dig into some issue and understand it better. Um, for me, probably the two, again, from economics, this might not be the most helpful to some people, but the, the, the book that probably had the biggest effect on my uh, growth as a uh, someone who analyzes data and statistics was uh, a book called Mostly Harmless Econometrics. Um, and it's definitely influenced me because this is a book that basically thinks you can it, it it really tries to show how much you can do with uh, a basic statistical toolkit, namely like linear regression um, is is a lot of what that book is about. And uh, I think I think that was really that book definitely had a big influence on on how I think about data and model. For sure. One of the things we we've, we've often found here at Pinnacle when you're you're talking about people betting and trying to learn and kind of take themselves to a to a higher level it's it's all well and good focusing on what you should do but people often neglect or forget about the things that you shouldn't do so to kind of flip an earlier question is there something perhaps mistakes you've made personally or a lot of what you see from people within the predictive modeling world that mistakes you really have to avoid i think i think generally it seems to me that people jump to uh, complex models too quickly. I think when you're starting out and trying to understand and trying to model some process, uh, you want to start as simple as possible. You want to, I really think it's important to, to actually understand what your model is doing, as opposed to, say, in certain parts of the machine learning uh, world, machine learning, basically just a, a word for predictive statistics, but in this machine learning uh, culture it's it's a lot of it's black box meaning that you you have all these inputs going into the model and you have your output and um you don't really know what's driving your model and in theory you don't really care because you're just trying to predict uh some outcome as good as possible so you're just going to evaluate how well your model's doing um so maybe it doesn't matter that you understand how it's doing it but i actually i do think it can matter a lot um so i think that's one thing where people seem to go wrong a bit uh 
more for people who are just starting out, I think conceptually a big mistake people make is not understanding the difference between fitting uh, like the in-sample fit of your model versus the out-of-sample fit of your model. Um, so just, just the idea that you can always fit your model on a data set. You can always fit it pretty good. Um, this is analogous to just, you can always explain things really well in hindsight, but out of sample, which is analogous obviously to predicting things in the future, um, it's much harder. So I just think conceptually, sometimes that's a stumbling block for people is just understanding the difference between in sample fit and out of sample fit. Obviously in predictive modeling, we care about out of sample fit. We're trying to predict things that weren't used to construct our model. There's some, some real great insight there into to modeling as, in general. And as I said, um, the name is your, of your website suggests and you're kind of, um, you growing up and being in golf, involved in golf, there's that, that natural progression now to, to focusing on golf when it comes to your, your predictive modeling. So what kind of, what kind of, what's unique about golf in the sense that means your, your skills or your experience makes it a good sport for you to model? Yeah. So, uh, compared to other sports, I guess golf, golf's unique in that it's an individual sport. Um, I think on the surface, it would seem like golf could be harder to predict in the sense that there's, there's typically 156 players, uh, in a, in a tournament and you want to, you want to come up with a win probability say, so that seems, that seems somewhat difficult. Um, but I actually think golf is probably a lot easier than other sports to model simply because you can basically just treat each player in golf as their own, um, as having their own model, basically. And you're making an assumption that the performance of one golfer doesn't affect the performance of another, which I think is generally true. Obviously, at the end of tournaments, maybe that's not true. But if you compare that to team sports where you have, you know, five, six or ten players on the field at once, then it's really hard to isolate player individual player performance and individual player performance is ultimately going to be something that you're going to use to predict uh, or that's going to, going to go into your model so i think that those make other sports hard golf i think uh yeah golf is easier in that sense we we basically just treat each golfer as an independent um entity and then um we're just trying to model the the the, the scores of each golfer and then once you have those you can without going into details you can you can aggregate those up and sort of figure out win probabilities. But at its core, all we're doing is taking an individual golfer and trying to predict their their score, um, which I think is easier than than other sports. And as for our personal, my brother and I, our personal fit for golf, I think it does help. This gets back to my point earlier. It does help. Like we understand the intricacies of golf really well. I think we've spent a lot of time around the game. So that has influenced how we uh, how we built our model. I think that's what I was going to ask. So what? So how how important is that kind of understanding of the sport and to a to a very kind of elite level to the point where we were saying earlier you're playing off scratch? That only that obviously shows how much time you've dedicated to it. So how just how important is that? It's hard to say. I mean, I do I do think it's important. Uh, it's probably a bit counterintuitive for most people once they hear that we are serious we were serious golfers my brother and i um and then if we told them about how our model works they would probably think there's a bit of a disconnect um because the reason i say that is most people when we tell them about our model or we tell them that we're modeling golf they think they immediately think okay are you taking into account all these little things like the the fact that this green is is sloped in some direction or 
this the how each hole is shaped and are you taking into account that different players might play these holes differently whereas our model in reality is is much more high level than that it's it's only using uh round level scores it's not using any hole level information um or any of that so yeah it's it's hard to say i do think i think i think will and i probably have an appreciation for how uh definitely how random golf can be how just how unpredictable how little control sometimes you have over your performance in golf and so the reason that relates to modeling is just that um you sometimes you can't put much value in how a golfer played in a in a four round stretch or even a 10 round stretch so um whereas maybe someone who doesn't watch golf that much they would think that every single thing that happens in golf um a golfer playing eight shots worse one day than they did the next they they want to provide a story for why that happened whereas maybe as golfers will and i would know like no this is just this is well within what we would just expect to happen due to randomness um in quotations not not being very clear about what randomness means but just sort of inherent unpredictability that we can't really uh, explain anything so when you and your brothers hit the course do you do you put it into the model and see what spits it out or i'm guessing there's not enough data there no yeah we've never applied anything to uh to our games there are there are apps that exist where you can uh the strokes gain stuff you can plug in your own data and uh and it'll give you a bunch of numbers but no we wouldn't yeah we wouldn't have enough data we probably also wouldn't want to see the the output so you kind of you touched upon there i mean you've you've said from the very beginning how important strokes gained is and you kind of talked about round level scores and stuff like that and obviously i'm not I'm not going to ask you to kind of give away the secret sauce here, but if you could go in perhaps to a little bit more detail into the the actual data golf model and and kind of what it comprises of and give people a little bit more insight into what you guys are doing, is that possible? Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, at the our model is I think it's very simple. Um, at the most basic level, what we're trying to do is model. Ultimately, we want ultimately we want to get probabilities on various finish positions so winning top five uh cut probabilities uh, a head-to-head matchup so the probability of, of tiger beating rory in a, in a match and so all of those outcomes can be a, you can obtain all those outcomes once you have uh some model of how scores and scores here I'll, can mean strokes gained so how many strokes a player is is how many strokes better than some benchmark um, a golfer is so the benchmark could be the average PGA Tour player, and we would say that Rory McIlroy is uh, two strokes better per round on average than that benchmark say. So once we have a model for how this uh, this these strokes gained are generated, so the the distribution of that, then you can get any probability you'd like. So our model is we have a model of how scores are generated, and it's the two basic things that if I if I, described, if I had to describe why our model is uh, effective, I would say the two main reasons are one, uh, which is a very basic reason, is that we have a t- we have a lot of data. So in golf, there's obviously many tours. So we, we try to get as much data as possible. So we have data on the PGA Tour, web.com, European, and a few development tours. And then the second main, impo- the really important thing is adjusting scores across these tours accurately. So you need to be able in golf to compare performances on the PGA Tour to performances on the European Tour. And it's not clear how to do this initially just because um, obviously a basic thing like <clears throat> comparing performance relative to the field 
um, is not great because PGA Tour fields are better than European Tour fields. So we have a method for uh, that we've sort of refined over the years for adjusting scores accurately. And then once you have those, all we're really doing is is taking these adjusted scores for each player. So let's focus on Rory. He has a set of historical scores, and we're applying various pretty simple statistical methods to just try and predict um, Rory's future score based on these historical scores. And then, and then once you have that, we're modeling. We're going to model Rory's score as this normally distributed variable, and we all know a normal distribution just has two parameters: a mean and a variance. And so, we're just going to estimate Rory's mean, estimate his own variance, and then we're sort of done. Now we have, now we have a model for how Rory's scores are generated. And once you do that for every player, you can, uh, you can use those to simulate any probability you want. And I'm probably going to provide a, a, an example here of you were saying about people thinking it's more complicated than it is. But obviously, the amount of data that's out there, people are probably used to um, greens and regulation or scrambling, one putt percentage, whatever it might be. Are those factors part of the consideration or is it literally just strokes gained kind of tops everything? Yeah, so, so those aren't. Um, I, I guess I should say we do use round level strokes gained so total, which is just, as I said earlier, the strokes better you are than some benchmark. And then we also do do use the categories. So in strokes gain, there's there's the off the tee performance, approach performance, and then around the green and putting. So those also go into the model. But uh, yeah, the older stats have sort of become obsolete in a sense. Uh, one thing we are working on right now is trying to incorporate course fit into the model, which is the idea that certain players perform better at at certain courses, which I definitely think is a thing. I, I do think that course fit exists, but then the, obviously the question is whether or not you can use data to, to identify this and not just mislead yourself into a, a worse position than not incorporating it at all. So for that, we are using, uh, we're going to use things like driving distance and driving accuracy, which are, those are traditional stats in golf. And um, the reason for that is just strokes gain off the tee doesn't, it doesn't capture. It doesn't tell you why you're gaining strokes off the tee. Is it because you're hitting the ball straight or because you're you're hitting the ball far? So, uh, one aspect of course fit that we're trying to understand is just are there courses where it's 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 favoring um, players who are hitting it straight versus players who are hitting it far? So, for example, last week at Bethpage, it was we haven't run any analysis on this, but I think it's clear to any viewer that uh, this was a course where you kind of had to hit it really far, or you were or you almost had no chance. So. Um, that's one part where we're, we're going to be using the older statistics in golf. And then kind of beyond when it comes to um, profiling a course based on the, the skills or the attributes required from a specific player, are you looking or are there plans to look at, um, obviously you've got like links and parkland types of course, does that become part of the consideration? Uh, not really. I think we do, it does in the sense that we're, we do use course history it, Actually, no. In our main model that we use on our website right now, we don't use course history. So course history is just is looking at how players have performed at that specific course in the past. Um, I think in general in golf, like this is where I really think people go go wrong. They just they just underestimate how how random golf is. Um, they think that uh, a 20 round sample where a player has played uh, a golfer has played maybe one stroke per round better than their their baseline. Their baseline meaning sort of their general performance level at other courses. Um, 
the fact that they performed one shot better per round over a 20 round stretch at some course is that could easily be generated by randomness and golf. That's, that's not even, uh, it's really not a big sample. So I think you can, it's very easy to get mislead, misled by these small samples. And anytime you're working with course fit, it's or course history. It's, it's almost always a small sample. So, um, I do think it's, you, you need to be careful not to be misled there. Um, and this kind of gets back to the in-sample fit versus out-of-sample fit thing that I was talking about. What people love to do in golf, sort of the golf data world, is find interesting historical patterns and find that, oh, so-and-so has played well on Parkland courses, say, and he's played poorly on Lynx courses. But what almost nobody does is they say, uh, or they ask, does the fact that so-and-so has played poorly on um, a Lynx course in the past predict that they will play poorly on Lynx courses in the future? And for that, what you need to do is you need to you need to take all the players in your data, figure out how they've played on Lynx courses over some time period, say 2000 to 2010, and then use that to predict their performance from 2010 onwards. And what you'll find when you start doing this is there's just very few things in golf that are predictive. Um, you always find variation across any dimension you want, Lynx course, Parkland, um, long courses, short courses. You'll always find that people have seem to have played worse or better just due to randomness but when you actually evaluate the predictive content of this stuff it's almost uh it's almost always lacking and i mean it's, it's clear to see that the data is incredibly important here to everything that, that you're doing and even if someone wants to kind of make that beginner entry level but in terms of accessing data, do you have data partnerships or is it a case of just scraping data from websites? Yeah, right now it's just uh, just scraping. Um, as I said earlier, we did have a, through an academic license, we did have a, a really nice data set for the, the PJ Tour, but that program since been discontinued uh, because the PJ Tour is, um, right now they're in the process of selling their data rights to a couple big companies. So they've really clamped down on who has access. So yeah, for us, it's just, uh, it's just scraping, which is is okay. Uh, you, it's pretty, as I said, you want to get as data across as many tours as possible. So we have six or seven professional tours where we're we're collecting data each week. Um, it is a bit limiting in that you can't. I'm not sure we would we would anyway. But basically now you no longer can use the shot level data, the GPS PJ Tour data, to you just can't really use that anymore. I think the PJ Tour would get angry at you if you did. So. Uh, if you were able to access it. So yeah, we just scrape now and it's, um, yeah, it's, it's doable for anybody who wants to get into it. And beyond the, the amount of data or the quality of data and things like that, is there any, um, kind of talked a lot about strokes gained, what about new metrics that are either in development or you can maybe foresee com coming to the fore in the future? Is there anything out there that you're looking at? I do think there's concepts like, uh, well, first, I do think strokes gained has really sort of, I don't think we're going to move too far from strokes gained as being the, the best metric of performance in golf. I think strokes gained can always be improved a bit just because it's, right now, strokes gained is just, as I said earlier, it's it's the performance of each shot or the, the quality of each shot in the number of strokes relative to some baseline, usually the average PGA Tour player. So... But that baseline is always just right now, just based off how far you are from the hole and uh, what what your lie is. So, 
the fairway or rough. So obviously that, that, that misses a lot of elements in golf, like your angle into the green or whether you're short-sided. So strokes gain might, it could be improved a bit um, by adding in, basically collecting more data about the shot. But then you, for there, you always have a trade-off between sample size and the detail of um, the shot under consideration. Um, as for new metrics, I think, uh, I do think things like expected wins should be something that comes into golf. So what expected wins in golf can be, um, we know that just using historical data, you can figure out how, how often, um, or how often say does when you beat a field, uh, a tournament field by four, by four strokes per round, let's say, how often does that result in a win? Um, you can figure that out from historical data. So expected wins would basically be a mapping from a player's performance in golf, which is just how many strokes they beat the field by. Um, and then how likely that is to result in a win. So, for example, if you beat a field by five strokes per round on the PGA Tour, that's almost always going to result in you winning. Whereas if you beat a field by 3.5 strokes per round, that's maybe going to result in a win 30 or 40% of the time. Actually, no, less than that. So for Tiger, for example, at the Masters, he ended up only beating the field, I think, by uh, maybe like three. I think it was around 3.5, which at a major especially rarely rarely translates into a win so he would get an expected win of you know 0.3 there whereas um way back when or not way back a few years ago when phil and henrik Sanson had their duel at the british open phil ended up losing but he would have had i mean he beat the field by i think six six and a half shots per round he would have had an expected win there of um like 99 percent. so so expected wins is sort of cutting through the noise of um the fact that sometimes you just play really well and somebody plays better and if you're just looking at wins, obviously that doesn't get captured, but that's sort of a silly way to go about it because expected wins will tell you just how um, how many really high-quality performances has a player had, irrespective of whether it actually translated into a win. Yeah, it's very interesting to hear that. I mean, as a, a fan of soccer, and I'm sure you've probably heard of it in, in ice hockey as well, you have expected goals, which is that kind of measure of, or it gives us that line between was someone unlucky not to score or in this case unlucky not to win which is is very interesting to hear yeah it's definitely related to uh to those concepts and it's just it's all about just reducing the noise um i guess hopefully when you try and sort of if somebody really pushes you on why so why should we use expected wins or why should we use expected goals um i assume the rationale is that these are just more predictive of performance or just more so if I want to predict future performance, you can either and you can either give me how many wins a person has or how many expected wins they have. Um, I assume this is true. Expected wins will just be more predictive or more informative about um, about performance. And I'm sure expected goals in soccer is the same. Yeah, it kind of feels a bit unnatural, and I think people struggle often struggle with the concept of actual goals is is more predictive or expected goals. Sorry, is more predictive than actual goals. But I mean the the proof is in the data, really, in the, the following performance, I guess. So we, I think, well, we've done a great job of kind of talking about um, your kind of career and, and how Data Golf started out, and we've kind of gone into a lot more detail about how Data Golf actually works. I think now the next step is a lot of people listening to this will obviously be better themselves, um, would be to kind of talk about it in the context of betting. And, I mean, it's it's fairly commonplace for for people who have invested time and money into developing a model, they then try and monetize that model 
through the the medium of betting so i'm assuming one that's kind of something you're doing and and two if it is could you kind of talk to us a little bit about your your experience with investing in your model uh yeah right from the start actually we we decided to so i guess we probably started uh publishing our predictions our model predictions maybe two years ago uh this early early 2017 and um yeah right from the start we were making bets just not not nothing obviously we weren't betting very much and we weren't really spending much time looking for good odds or a lot of uh or making a lot of bets but we started out just doing like 10 or 15 top 20 bets or top five mostly top 20 bets in golf so Top 20 meaning you're betting on whether a golfer in a given tournament is going to finish uh, among the top 20 players. And and we sort of, the main reason we were doing that is just, it's a simple way to evaluate your model uh, in a very transparent way and one that everyone can understand. Um, basically, did you make money or not is a pretty easy way to validate your model, um, although it's, it's probably not the best way. Um, and so, yeah, we did that for... I guess our first two years and definitely starting out, we underestimated the variance, which is funny. Even us, uh, my brother and I who have experience with working with data and should understand randomness better. I think we totally underestimated the randomness in, uh, in betting outcomes, especially with top twenties in golf, which is, is pretty high variance. So our first year actually went really well. We, we weren't betting nearly enough. I realized in hindsight, we probably only made 200 bets, which is in the entire year, which is, nothing uh, like a drop in the bucket really um, so we did really well in our first year in terms of ROI or return on capital and then in the second year with a model that I think is better almost surely was better like statistically we did we did worse like much worse and so this year we're so that was 2017 and 2018 and then this year we've decided to and that was all just top 20 bets this year we've decided to our goals were to bet way more uh, not necessarily more money, but just the volume of bets. And we're also betting a lot on uh, matchups and three balls. So those are in golf. Those are just you're betting one player versus another on a given day or throughout a given tournament. And then three balls are the same thing except three players. Um, and so that's going that's going better. That's much more. I think we've already made a th- like uh, over a thousand bets this year, which still isn't a huge amount, but it's getting there. Um, and so that's just much more. You just need to. You really need to reduce the, the influence of the variance of golf on your betting outcomes. I think was the main lesson we learned. And one way a lot of people kind of listening to this will will know this is that one way to perhaps manage that variance is to use some kind of staking method when betting. Obviously, in relation to kind of the edge that you you believe you have. So, is that were you just doing flat stakes, or were you using a staking method through that period? Yeah. So we were using uh, some variant of the the Kelly staking method. Um, I think this year, because it, that, that probably didn't matter too much when we were just doing top 20s because those are all, they're all the same bet type. So the edges, the edges vary, obviously, but the obviously the, the Kelly takes into account your edge and then also the actual value of the odds. So the longer the odds, the smaller the, the stake, all else equal. But so this year we have, just because we're doing matchups, which are much lower have much lower odds than top 20 bets. Uh, the Kelly probably had that probably has helped a lot. So our top 20 bets and our, our top five bets are much smaller stakes generally. And then the, the, the matchups are bigger. And then when it comes to, to measuring your success, are we looking at 
ROI or are you measuring kind of against the closing line and stuff like that? Uh, yeah, right now we're just using ROI. We are we're currently sort of trying to now we're now we've been trying to build a historical database of of odds across a few books just because we weren't able to I suppose we haven't looked super hard, but we weren't able to get a good historical database of golf odds just because obviously that's the best way to relate it back to modeling just um, for a moment. The best way, if you're going to use your model to gamble, obviously the best way to evaluate your model is with historical odds and just to to simulate the process of taking um, a five-year stretch of data and and uh, or a five-year stretch of odds and then um, just simulating the betting process and seeing whether or not if you placed a bet every time your model said you should, are you making money? Um, we would love to do that in golf. We haven't been able to, but um, so right now we are building that historical database. So eventually we do want to look at closing lines uh, versus opening lines and whether or not that is a good indicator of uh, of betting success. I'm a bit skeptical, just haven't done a rigorous analysis, but just looking at sort of week to week, just always following the closing lines. Um, it's 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 not clear how uh, efficient closing lines are in golf, especially compared to other sports where I think it's been pretty much settled, at least in soccer, for example, that the closing lines at some books are really efficient. I don't think that's necessarily true in golf. It seems like it just seems like lines move all over the place. They move uh, not that our model is the truth, but our model, it seems lines are are just as often moving against it as they are as they are with it. So um, that, and that could be wrong. I'm, this is just based off sort of like anecdotal. I'm just looking at closing lines each week and how they moved. But uh, definitely we do want to look into closing line value as a, as a metric for our, our model in the future, just because that's, that's one way you can cut through a lot of the noise as well. And when it comes to the, the bets that you're placing or the, the edges that you found in the market, is there any kind of pattern in terms of the the level of competition so would you say there's there's more value or less value in major events or then as you scale down to kind of pga tour events and, and lower level events is there any kind of pattern there nothing that we've um in terms of the majors versus non-majors there's not a pattern that we've you know form, like rigorously assessed it does seem like it would make sense definitely we have our model has more does find more edges in the majors and that could be due to just i mean a there's way more bets uh, being offered and also there could be more uh, casual betters that are if books are responding if bookmakers bookmakers are responding to public uh, money then if this public money is less sharp during majors then maybe it's moving lines in uh, in weird ways so that's definitely possible uh, one I do think it does seem like bookmakers respond a lot to a or they put a lot of weight on things like course history and course fit um, so that's definitely one area where our model is always going to, uh, find edges and we're always willing to, to back the model there just because I do think course fit is something that you can't quantify as well as a lot of people think you can. Um, and then another thing which we actually wrote about recently is it's amazing how some books, they really move a lot in response. They really move lines a lot in response to, uh, how, how golfers perform on the first day of a tournament. So you can see in, in this in this little blog post that we wrote on our site recently, you can the same bookmaker will offer uh, the same matchup on Thursday and Friday of a tournament in rounds one and two. And you can sort of back out how much they think the player's ability has changed based on what odds they're offering. 
And I think um, I think what we came up with was they, they were basically taking 10% of a player's performance on thir- Thursday uh, across to Friday. So they would they would say uh, if a golfer is a, a one stroke per round better than PGA Tour player, PGA Tour average player, that's his ability level. Um, and then he, he, he beats that ability level on Thursday by three shots, let's say. They would increase that player's ability to 1.3 strokes per round better than a PGA Tour average player. This is what their odds imply. Um, and whereas we would maybe say, we would say Thursday almost contains no information. It would We would change our player's ability by maybe 2% or 1%. So that's definitely somewhere where our model is going to find, we always find a lot of edges on Friday, for example, just because of this phenomenon. So that's something where obviously the, you could almost class the tournament as as live. Do you apply that as well when the actual rounds are live? So you, are you getting involved in live markets or is it purely pre-match stuff? Uh, yeah, it's purely it's purely pre-tournament and we also do stuff between rounds. So in between, uh, in between Thursday, like Thursday night, say, before the second round starts. But definitely though, our model is... Uh, right now, our model, our live model, we have our estimates of player skill are updating every five minutes with our model. So it's obviously very, very small adjustments. But over the course of a day, like I said, we only apply one or two percent of a player's form from a single day to the next day. But that can still be quite a lot in golf just because players sometimes beat their baselines by like eight strokes on a given day. So that can that can turn into a big translate into a pretty big movement. Um so we don't we don't do live betting, but uh, within when the round is actually going on, but it's something we could. It would just require more effort, probably more more manual labor. And one thing we haven't gone to at all is the betting exchanges, where um, I gather that it's pretty easy to set up bots and stuff to to place bets automatically. So that that could be something to look at in the future. But right now we don't do it for uh, for anything, even for outright bets. I think we've kind of, we've, well, you yourself have given a, a shed load of information throughout this recording. I think people listening to this, they're, they're going to take that on board and try and kind of distill it themselves. But to to help put things into practice for them, obviously we can talk a little bit about the the remainder of the golf season. Now, the, the PGA Championships has obviously come and gone, but we've got a couple of major events throughout the rest of the year. And the US Open, I believe, is like mid-June and... The British Open is normally a month or so after that. So in terms of timescales, are you thinking about those events yet or are you just going week by week and, and other events? As far as the model goes, we're just going uh, week to week. We definitely don't place bets too far into the future. Although I think there would be a big edge there. I was, I've only thought about this briefly, but I think, I, yeah, I would need to, I need to look at the odds closer, but just a cursory look at them. It seems to me that bookmakers set odds, say for the U.S. Open, which is a, a month from now, they set odds as if the tournament was going to happen tomorrow. So right now, the, because the 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 PGA just happened, Brooks is probably the favorite. And what I, I what, what I don't think they're doing is they're not accounting for the fact that a month from now, obviously there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, Brooks could get hurt, or he could just play like he could play very poorly. So I do think. I mean, I could be wrong here. Maybe they are accounting for these things, but obviously, the the further out an event is, the more uncertainty there should be in your predict in your 
projections of player skill. So what that'll do is it should just bring everybody closer together. So if in reality, Brooks is a, a, a if in truth, he has a 10% probability of winning the U.S. Open if it were to happen tomorrow, then the true probability of him winning the U.S. Open a month from now is probably more like 7 or 8%, just because you always expect, well, there's a couple assumptions there, but you should always expect things to tighten up the further things are away, because basically the fact that there's uncertainty and then the fact that regression to the mean is a, is a thing. So good people should get worse on average and better and bad people should get better on average. So that, def, that definitely could be one thing you could take advantage of. Um, but our model is, yeah, just, just going week to week. Um, and we just sort of have a pretty automated process as far as our betting goes. Yeah, I mean, it seems any kind of any kind of major golf event you see Brooks Kepka, Dustin Johnson, Rory McIlroy, and, and Tiger Woods at the top, and then it's pretty much take your pick from the rest. It's definitely amazing what Brooks has done. Uh, well, I'm not sure if amazing. Well, no, it, it is amazing. Um, mainly just because he's done it in majors while he hasn't done it in in other tournaments. And I, I still personally think that for Kepka, it could be. Maybe this will be very silly five years from now when Kepka's won 10 majors, but I, I really just, I find it hard to believe that he truly plays better in majors. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. Just what I, I mean, one of the first things I think you should do when you see a weird correlation in the data or a weird pattern, and I think Kepka's performance in majors versus non-majors is, should be classified as a bit of a weird, it's definitely an anomaly. I think you need to think about why, is there a, is there a good reason why this would happen? What, like, what's the mechanism through which Kepka is somehow able to play really well in majors? And I just don't buy the story of him focusing more. Or There definitely could be a story of course fit. Major courses could be better fit to him because he, he hits it a mile. And uh, major courses tend to require good driving. Um, but so, so I guess my point is that I do think it still could just be mostly randomness. And... Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Kepka doesn't win. I wouldn't be surprised if he, he only wins five majors in his career. We've seen other runs like this. So it'll be really interesting to follow Kepka in the future. And I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd strongly advise anyone that's kind of interested in betting to, to head over to, web, to your website and use that information before they kind of place any bets. But just, just while you're on the podcast, if there's any, any players that, that your model likes or you would kind of mark down as, as ones to watch, if you like, for the for the rest of the season or potentially upcoming events? Who, who would you put in that list? Yeah, I think top of the list would be would be Patrick Cantlin in terms of if we're talking about how the market perceives the player versus uh, how our model perceives the player. Um, Cantlin now, I mean, it may maybe now it's the market maybe is finally catching up because he just, he just came tied for third, I think, at the PGA. But he is someone who just, our model every single week is, uh, is high on relative to the market. And I think the main reason for that is just he's not a he's not a flashy player, although that probably isn't that important. But more so, he just hasn't had many high finishes. Well, any really high finishes. He hasn't won any big events, which is, I think, what the public likes to see sometimes. So he, he Cantley is, I think, I think our model has him as the fifth best player in the world, which is fairly remarkable. I think Brooks is the sixth best now. <laughs> but uh, And then another, another couple other players that I think have, have gone a bit under the radar, uh, Webb Simpson is i think just been been really solid so that's sort of a maybe he's not a top guy but he's just below the first sort of echelon um and uh i mean a player that everybody knows and i still think is probably underrated is john rom i know he just 
I think he missed the he did miss the cut at the PGA, but he's had a really the start to his career the start to his career the first three years has been other than Tiger it's been better than any other young player Rory or Spieth or any of those guys if you look at how their career progressed in their first three years Rom uh, is a bit ahead of those so I don't think he quite gets the respect that he's his his performance is warranted so some I'll ask you for some some final thoughts now Matt I'd, I'd be interested to know um, if you could change anything or what do you want to see change in either the world of of, de- of data analytics or betting or both what would you kind of want to see happen in the future i think in data analytics i would like to see this machine learning wave to subside maybe subside maybe a bit or or maybe actually just to i mean machine learning stuff is very it's amazing i think what it's been able to do in some contexts but maybe just to uh I think the public has a very skewed view of what machine learning is and what it does. And uh, it's this very uh, black box view of statistical modeling where it's just this mysterious computer is somehow able to just form these amazing predictions. So I would, I would love for statistical modeling to go more towards a lot more towards maybe back towards uh, uh, these scenarios where you're, you're really understanding your model and it's more what statistical modeling is which is you're you're describing the data generating process as opposed to this black box black box approach where all you care about is what you're predicting you don't know why these predictions happen all you know that all you know is that it it works well um because the problem with that is it sure it works well now but if if the rules of the game change or the the underlying environment that your model is in changes you can't adapt your model if you don't understand it so that's maybe one trend that will be interesting to see just if what's going to happen with this machine learning uh, wave. Um, and then for betting and golf, uh, I don't know if I want to see anything specific happen. I do think it's going to be interesting as the, as the way golf is present, presented to people on TV and stuff, as video becomes more, the, just the pure volume of video grows where we just have, like we did at the Masters, this wasn't live, but after every shot you could, you had video of that person's shot. As that becomes more and more prominent, I think we're going to see more shot-level betting. So betting on whether uh, a golfer is going to hit it inside 10 feet on a par 3, stuff like that. Um, and I know the PGA Tour is moving in that direction with these. I think that's the main reason they were selling their data rights is for bookmakers to have access to this official live data. So that'll be really interesting. Um, that'll also be that'd be hard for us where we sit right now to get involved with simply because that, that's going to require shot-level analysis but that'll be that'll be a really interesting um thing to watch for in the in the future of golf betting i think that's that's you and many others probably feel the same way um i think that's a that brings a great close to today's episode i just want to say matt thank you so much for coming on i mean it's been it's been eye-opening for me and i'm sure many of the listeners feel exactly the same so so thank you very much yeah it was really fun thanks for having me on And if anyone's interested to hear more about Matt and Will and Data Golf, you can visit datagolf.ca or follow at datagolf on Twitter. And obviously, if you want to learn more about betting in general, head to pinnacle.com forward slash betting resources or visit at Pinnacle Sports on Twitter. But that's it for today. And thanks for listening. Bye for now.